0: Welcome to this week's episode of the HC Hive, a podcast about all things HCI, UX, and grad school. We're now in Hershali, students in Georgia Tech's Human-Computer Interaction Program.
1: In this episode, we will be talking about doing user experience work in the public sector, but more specifically, user experience in space. Today we are joined by Jack. So Jack, why don't you start us off with a little, a little introduction about yourself?
2: My name is Jack Gale, product designer and researcher at NASA Ames Research Center. I work within the HCI group, and I work on a team that develops planning and scheduling tools for space. I've been there for about five years, I guess, actually, I think today might be my five-year anniversary, maybe today or tomorrow, something like that. See, so yeah, I started out as an intern, and you know, I've worked my way up, and I've been a like I said, a researcher slash designer for about five years now.
0: Well, welcome, Jeff, and happy five-year anniversary. Um, That's very exciting. Thank you again for joining us on an episode of the podcast. So as we kind of get started, so when we think of like working in the public sector, we often think of services and enterprises related to the government um, in particular. So how might UX or HCI as a whole how is it different in the sector compared to like the private sector from your experience?
2: Yeah, I would say a few things are different. First off, the funding sources are different. A private company you have, you know, shareholders or a board or a CEO and money flows through those organizations very differently. At NASA, you know, we, you know, we don't, we just don't have those same kind of questions about kind of, shareholders and value and things like that. Like we we have research grants and we have government funding and we have directives to focus on certain um, either missions or goals, but that's at least one difference. You know, another is the work itself. We are a, a mission-driven company. Um, we're not really a company at all, rather. We're, we're a mission-driven organization and we're you know, those directives are given to us either by you know center leadership at a you know like at nasa ames research center or by the vice president or the president himself or herself the last directive i can remember mike pence came up with which was we should have boots on the moon by 2024. so like those are our goals that that everyone kind of pushes towards whereas at a private company you'd have goals related to revenue, um, new products, services that you want to deploy, like these kinds of things. So like, there's lots of differences for sure.
1: That's really interesting that you bring up funding as kind of like a primary difference because I guess that's not spoken about enough about where the motivation to do user experience even comes from in an organization. And it is interesting how like money plays into all of that and I imagine the public sector like sources of funding and sources of money, like, you know, that's a whole different network and a whole different kind of set of incentives, I would say, um, for the whole process. So that's, that's really interesting. But you know, like, as somebody who started at NASA as an intern, as you mentioned, and then kind of worked your way up, what prompted you to pursue work in the public sector and, and specifically at NASA? Like, what, what was kind of the draw for you there? What were kind of the challenges that you faced? And what were some of the more rewarding parts of being there?
2: yeah i would say it's the the work itself as i said it's a mission driven company they're they're real missions like we want to land a rover on mars we want to get boots on the moon by 2024 we want to have human exploration to places like mars by 2030. those are really ambitious goals that you can get excited about um, it's so it's very easy to get excited about the work itself there's the complexity of the work that really intrigued me you know, the the design decisions that we make have real implications. These tools are used to to aid humans as they explore new surfaces, new planets, the moon, etc. It's the use cases, the complexity, a lot of these things, but also the funding is a another reason, you know, like, I don't really have to worry too much about, you know, generating monetary value for my group or my team. You know, I work on projects that have, you know, funding for two or three years, either from a grant of some kind, or it's, you know, funding for a certain project that's, you know, we'll get funding for a few years to work on, you know, a habitat design project where, you know, there's, there's a, you know, a few Mars habitats that need to be evaluated, and we'll get a, a portion of that funding to evaluate our tool, you know, within these habitats. So like, you know, it's, it's continuing continuation funding and grant funding and these kinds of things. So like, I don't have to worry about short term, like how much revenue am I, you know, generating with this feature, this month, this fiscal year, I'm, I'm, I get to focus on like longer term goals and missions, things like that.
0: Yeah, that's really cool that it's not only like the work itself that you enjoy, but also like the context of I guess like the space that you're in. I don't I don't mean to say space as like a pun or anything, but <laughs> I guess kind of going off from that, like since you did start at NASA as an intern and then you're currently working there, like, how has it changed since you started? You probably worked on a lot of different projects, but has your role itself changed or um, like the different types of work you do? And kind of like, what was that kind of journey like to where you are now?
2: Yeah, it's very similar to, you know, someone in private industry might experience. So as an intern, you work on intern projects that, you know, don't necessarily get deployed and used. They're, they're more proof of concept style projects where you get to see the project from start to finish and then it most likely just kind of ends there when 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 all the interns leave the project ends maybe it gets taken on and pushed forward later but you know most likely not but you know as you transition from an intern to a to a product designer you get to work on more real projects that have uh, that actually get deployed you get to design features that you know, get developed by our engineers and, and, and developers within our team. So it's just, you know, it's it's fairly standard. You just get more responsibility. Um, your work has more impact because it actually gets deployed on a, you know, a mission, a simulation, whatever the, the use case is, you actually get to see the feature or the tool being used, which is, you know, exciting.
0: Yeah, that is exciting to see get implemented, um, like you mentioned, or actually see like a direct impact of the work you have done, which I'm sure is probably the same for a lot of us when we go from like interning to an actual full-time job. But yeah, so speaking more um, specifically, I guess on the MSHCI program. So you joined the program while working at NASA and you also had like work experience before that as well. But how has the program kind of challenged or reinforced like kind of what you've experienced from industry?
2: Yeah, it's definitely challenged me in terms of the the content and the, the coursework. I came from a design background. I got an interaction design degree from California College of the Arts. So there was a lot more UI, visual design, graphic design, these kinds of classes, but, you know, at Georgia Tech, I've been able to take more almost human factors-based courses. One of my favorite classes was evaluation of human integrated systems, and there was some quantitative analysis, which I got to um, experience. We got to work with our studio and take a look at, we got to take a look at larger quantitative data sets and use that to evaluate design decisions. So just new, really new coursework, more research focused, these kinds of things.
1: Okay, Jad. So word on the street is that your team was able to work with NASA for your master's project. So it's a year long project that we worked on to complete as part of the program. And it seems like Jad, you and your team got to work with NASA for this project. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that project and what you guys kind of came up with and what was that partnership like with kind of this public entity with NASA and how how did you kind of negotiate that?
2: Yeah it wasn't a formal partnership with NASA you know as an organization it was more of a relationship in terms of you know we selected a, a NASA centric project theme and then we got a number of NASA advisors so we had advisors from Ames Research Center and Johnson Space Center to help guide the project and we could leverage those advisors if we ever ran into. You know, a question or a concern. These NASA tools are really complex, and sometimes you just arrive at a, at a moment where you just can't answer something. So, using those advisors was was key in those in those moments. Yeah, I was working on a team of three on that project. Was uh, Tushar Gupta and Kevin Key, and we were interested in designing, what we call flexible, geospatial tools for spacewalks or EVAs, extra vehicular activities. So, anytime an astronaut leaves the international space station or a habitat of any kind and puts on the emu spacesuit. this is called an eva and they they last between three and six hours and these astronauts are doing all sorts of tasks maintenance assembly tasks but future evas are going to be more exploratory in nature you're going to be exploring the surface of mars and collecting samples these kinds of things so in order to aid that these evas we need to have management tools um, that, that allow us to track the location of the astronaut, the science tasks, where folks are collecting samples, these kinds of things. And yeah, we, we've been working on that project for the last two semesters, we developed a, a prototype, actually, which was really cool, which, you know, Tushar had some development knowledge, so he was able to help us develop this tool. And we got to evaluate it with a series of usability studies with actual folks from from NASA. So we had astronauts mission planners flight engineers geologists those were those are the folks that we were recruiting and we really couldn't have done that without uh, our NASA advisors we were really happy with the, how the project turned out we had this prototype we had our usability studies and we were able to run some analysis on quantitative data some qualitative data and we I feel like we produced some interesting recommendations and a good starting point for for future geospatial tools uh, like these and really, they, they don't exist right now, at least for human exploration. There's lots of rover geospatial tools that are like GIS maps, and those it's expected that those are going to be the, probably the basis for future human EVA tools. Right now, currently, there's, no, there's nothing quite like prototype we designed, so we wanted to kind of plant a flag and say, this is the information that these astronauts will need. We scoped out a few different components, but basically like this is what We believe future astronauts will need to manage these EVAs. And this is, you know, how we should present this information at the right level of abstraction, because there's, there's too much stuff to, to worry about. There's, there's a location of the astronaut. There's the location of the samples that they're taking. There's things like life support systems, consumables, how much oxygen do we have, metabolic rate, these kinds of things. But then there's also timeline information, task information. And it can be overwhelming. So this was a a good project for HCI students because there's a task of filtering this information and presenting it at the right level of abstraction. So yeah, it it was a great project. I'm I'm really pleased with uh, what we are able to accomplish.
1: Yeah, that's, that sounds really complex, but also really fun <laughs> and just kind of an interesting project to work on, you know, kind of regardless of what it turned out to be. But kind of a follow-up question to that, you know, you mentioned that you were able to do some evaluation and usability testing with, you know, professionals at NASA and people who really work in the space every day. But when we do kind of evaluation, you know, there's value in recreating kind of the environment in which a product might be used in, you know, or like having having the ability to kind of test it in the wild, if you will, you know, kind of through like A-B testing or something like that. So how, what are kind of some challenges of doing some sort of evaluation of a project when your project is meant to, you know, be in space and, and be on a different planet, you know, like what are kind of the limitations you face there and how do you get around those?
2: That's a great question. So realism is, is really important when you're designing these types of tools for these use cases. So what NASA does generally to to mitigate for this, like lack of realism, is they have what are called analog simulations um, and they try to simulate what it might be like either on Mars or, you know, on the International Space Station by placing, you know, a number of scientists or astronauts in a a habitat on Earth. But we simulate things like communication delay, isolation and like living quarters constraints you know they're they're kind of locked into this small habitat and they stay there between you know 10 to 45 days or more depending on the simulation and that adds a level of realism that's useful especially when you're trying to capture you know data usability data or whatever sort of data you're interested in you know we don't have the ability to do that for this masters project but one reason why we selected this our user, which were um, intravehicular astronauts, so astronauts inside of a vehicle, as they manage astronauts outside of a vehicle. The reason why we chose that is because these workstations, future workstations like these, will they'll look very, very much like the workstation you have at your house. So, like future astronauts will have a monitor of some sort. Possible, it, it could be a um, kind of a mobile kind of surface or um, iPad, something like that, but. They will have some monitor, some workstation, and most likely a keyboard and mouse. It's something that you know all of us have working from home, so we were able to at least you know have some level of realism. You can't you can't account for everything, but you can get kind of close. And originally we were interested in a different user, which was the extravehicular astronaut or the astronaut outside of the vehicle. But the reason why we didn't select this user in this use case. Or their use cases because there are so many human factors constraints that we can't you know simulate and there's not enough realism you know astronauts that are outside the habitat they have a space suit and gloves and it's really bulky and cumbersome and we didn't want to go through the trouble of trying to simulate that and it would you know i think the data that we would capture from like a simulated suit usability study type thing wouldn't be as as you know useful so one of the main reasons we chose this management tool geospatial management tools, because we can prototype it or run usability studies that are semi realistic, you know, we can run these usability studies during COVID. So we don't need to be in the same room, we can run these usability studies remotely. And these were decisions that we had to think about in the beginning stages of the project. when we were thinking about, okay, who, who are we designing for? Who is our user? What is our use case? One of our constraints was we need to be able to run unmoderated or moderated remote usability studies. So that kind of canceled out a lot of original ideas that we had related to like a a digital cuff checklist on the side of your space, you know, on on, on your wrist or something for these EV astronauts that are exploring the surface of Mars. We we had to nix some of those ideas because we couldn't have that level of realism.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting to hear your all's process behind, as you mentioned, like focusing on people who were like outside the vehicle or astronauts outside the vehicle versus pivoting to um, like people inside and doing that geospatial management that you were talking about. It is really interesting to how you mentioned that the workspaces look similar or would look similar to kind of like what we already have. So that's cool that you're able to tie that in to make it easier like to simulate um, for your usability testing. Yeah, that's really cool.
2: There's like a feasibility question you have to ask yourself as a student. You know, you have realistic constraints, you have a certain amount of time, right? We only have a semester or two semesters or however long the, the duration is. And we only have a certain number of people working on the project. So like, you can't work on anything. Um, some projects are just too complex, you can't scope them effectively, or they're just not feasible during COVID, so we had those a lot of those discussions in the beginning of the semester. Like, what can we actually do, and where can we have the most impact with these time constraints and remote work constraints?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of us probably had the same type of conversations, um, whether we did the master's project solo or as a team. Probably with being remote this year, probably had like more like applied more constraints to our project. But I think it really pushed for some. Like creative design solutions. I remember helping Tushar with I think helping like a pilot study that you guys were doing with like Mm co-design or something. And even just the pilot, like it was really interesting. He didn't tell me what you guys were working on. Kind of kept that a secret, and then I just kind of went through the motion. And then he revealed like what it was meant for. So it was kind of cool to see all those connections kind of come together and see the your project really come to fruition. So that's awesome.
2: Yeah, the, the research methods seem to be the biggest constraint. Like, it would be difficult to run a contextual inquiry remotely. You can you can do that, but it depends on the work domain. You know, it's I feel like contextual inquiries are best when you're actually next to the person and you can see, you know, their facial expressions clearly, and you can see the small actions that they're making and the decisions that they're making in the same space as them. So I feel like the main constraint was the research methods that we could use to evaluate our, our design decisions, or our prototypes, whatever those might be.
0: Kind of shifting from talking about like your work uh, within the MSHCI program, to kind of just like your career path in general. For those interested in pursuing a career in within the public sector, from your experience, what advice would you give them? What do you kind of wish you knew before embarking on this like specific career path?
2: So I, I can only really speak for for NASA. I don't have any experience with the other agencies and they're all very different. But at least with with NASA you get a lot of autonomy to work on you know very complex projects that have you know real impact so if you're interested in you know longer duration research heavy projects that last for you know a few years at least some of them last so sometimes we have shorter projects but some projects are multi-year and they're they're very broad
1: maybe like what's something that you would have done differently in your career so far, kind of looking back at the fa- the last five years?
2: What would I have done differently? I would say so there's really two paths um, where you can enter you know, that you can enter NASA from. You can start as a, a contractor or you can start as a civil servant. Contractors are very different at NASA um, compared to other you know private sector companies. We have contractors that have been working at NASA for you know twenty, thirty years. And they're really long contracts. They're you know ten year long continuation continuing agreement contracts with universities or institutions. And this is a really great way to get into NASA. These these civil servant positions are very competitive, and there's not that many of them. There's even there are even hiring freezes. Sometimes they don't hire civil servants at NASA for a year or more, depending on uh, the funding that we have. So. Starting out as a contractor is a is a really good idea. Actually, it's easier to get contracting positions, and you get the same responsibilities for the most part. They're thought, you know, contractors are thought of as the same um, as civil servants. Every center is a little bit different; they have a little bit different relationship with contractors. But I would say, you know, one piece of advice for anyone who wants to become a civil servant eventually or wants to work for um, NASA is start as a contractor. Those jobs are, there, there's more of them. They're easier to get. And you get the same level of responsibility without the the kind of hoops that you have to jump through when you have to ultimately, if you ultimately want to shift and transition to become a civil servant. The civil servant hiring process is, is pretty long and it's complicated and it's it's not very transparent. They use automated hiring systems and it's difficult to figure out where you where you align or where you rank up with the other candidates. So I would say definitely start as a contractor. You'll get, you know, you get good pay, you get to work on the same projects and then you can use that and, you know, switch over.
0: Interesting, you brought up the benefit of like starting out as a contractor, like outside of public sector, even like I've noticed, I've seen a lot of like posts on LinkedIn or just like people offering career advice about like how to get your foot in the door for like HCI or just UX in general. And they've mentioned like take on contract work to get a feel for, like kind of to take on certain projects to kind of expose yourself to different types of technologies or different types of industries even before you kind of like I guess take on that like full-time role and things like that there are trade-offs of course but yeah it's interesting you brought that up
2: there there is another route which which I didn't mention and you know that this is the civil servant route and within the civil servant route there's a a program called pathways and this is a, a program a NASA program that allows students uh, pursuing either a PhD or a master's degree to work at NASA and go to school at the same time. And that's the program that I'm in. The program lasts as long as your degree. Um, And you're expected to stay in contact with the team, get a feel for how they work, attend their meetings while going to to school. Um, And at the end of your degree, once you actually obtain your degree, you have 120 days to, to convert from um you know pathways civil servant to a full full fledged civil servant and i'm in that process right now um because i'm set to graduate just in a few days so i'm working out those details right now and and that's a you know that that's a solid way to get your foot in the door and it's i think it's, you know high 90 98% 95% of pathways program folks end up transitioning into uh a full civil servant position
0: yeah that's really cool that you've been you're able to do that program the pathways that you mentioned and that percentage is super high so that's really nice that most people are able to transition into the like full-fledged civil servant Like,
2: yeah they can be competitive and then unfortunately they they only accept u.s citizens i know our program has a lot of international students which is a shame that they they don't buy but if you are a, a u.s citizen you can apply for these pathways positions and you can you can find them on USA Jobs. As I said, they are competitive, but um, you can set up reminders um, and notifications on USA Jobs and find out exactly when these positions open. There is one kind of trick. You know, I would say go on USA Jobs, set up notifications, and make sure you're on top of those applications because sometimes the the application is only open for a few days at the at the at the smallest. To, maybe two weeks, they're they're very competitive and they're only up on on the job site for for a short amount of time. But um, it's definitely, you know, a a solid option if you want to ultimately become a civil servant and work for a place like NASA long-term.
0: Wow, it's crazy that it's only up for, or like the job postings are only up for a couple of days. Yeah, I think that's good advice for anyone who's interested in applying for those type of positions.
2: This is a common NASA thing, hiring thing where all jobs, any new job has to be posted on USA jobs. It's, there's some law related to federal positions, federal government positions. They have to be placed on USA jobs for a certain amount of time. So even if an in, you know, so someone internally wants to move to a different you know, either agency or group or a new position, that position has to be posted on USA jobs so that it's fair and open to the public. And then there's and so to, to allow for competition. But a lot of these positions are written for a specific person in mind. So, you know, it's it's a way, it's you know, it's something that NASA, they have to do this, they have to post on USA Jobs. So, you know, that's why these positions can be even more competitive because sometimes you'll see a position online and, you know, it seems very specific. Like, oh, this person needs to have eight years of experience developing UAV traffic management systems and You know, who would have that experience other than someone who's been working at NASA in in the UAV traffic management group of some kind. So that makes the positions a little bit more competitive. But these pathways positions are wide open and they're more broad. They're either engineering focused or they're, you know, related to a certain larger field, but they're not so tailored to, you know, a specific job role or responsibility.
0: I had no idea about what you mentioned about the job postings like just now about keeping it fair so even if they already had a person in mind they post it on anyway so that everyone has like an equal
2: yeah they have to allow for that competition mm-hmm. and allow the job postings to be fair there's some law i can't remember what it's called but they have to post everything to usa jobs even if someone's getting a promotion into like a new job type they, they still need to post that job online and, and with those in those cases they'll only they'll only have the the job posting available for like two days or something. It's really geared for a specific person.
1: All right. Thanks, Jad. That was a lot of really valuable advice um, for anybody who wants to, you know, get a foot in the door at NASA or even is considering the various time programs and paths to employment there. All of that was just like really great insight that I feel we couldn't, have as people who've never worked there, so thanks for sharing that. But now that we're winding down the episode, we are reaching our favorite portion of each episode, the hot take. So for this episode, we're wondering about rebranding. So it's common for companies and organizations to rebrand themselves in order to adapt to the needs of kind of their users and their societies and whoever might kind of visit their website or whatnot. So what are your honest thoughts on the redesign of the CIA website? And feel free to bring up any other government website. We just think like the CIA website right now is like hilarious. So just <laughs> give, you know, give us a hot take, tell us your thoughts.
2: Yeah, so uh, I I got the chance to to look at the redesign of the website as well as the logo. Just as a, just looking at it as a visual artifact, I, I kind of like the CIA logo. I mean, it's it's got some bold sans serif font. It's got this cool kind of contour drawing in the back. I'm just purely talking about if you remove all kind of uh, associations or connotations with the brand or the organ or the agency. It, you know, it looks like a Joy Division album cover or like an architectural drawing, uh, contour line drawing. But it's very it's very modern for sure. And um, just looking at the the redesign of the site, the logo, and some of these commercials that they've been generating and pushing out to the public. It seems like they're they're interested in recruiting younger talent. They're using a lot of woke vocabulary in their in their commercials. And I'm not sure exactly why, but they're definitely interested in a younger uh, pool of, of recruits.
0: Now, do you have any opinions
1: on, on the website?
0: I mean, Jack kind of covered it in terms of... Because I, looking at the logo, I also thought that it looked like an album cover for something. And I remember when they initially like launched their rebrands it was all over twitter and people were like making memes of it and they were talking about like oh you like the cia like named their top five songs or something (laughs) which i thought was really funny but yeah i i think it is interesting what you mentioned jack about like it it does really feel like they're trying to appeal to like a younger audience and recruit younger talent and i do i wonder why that is Um,
2: i mean look at the old Logo, the old kind of crest with the eagle side by side to to the new logo. It's such a departure from from this kind of classic seal. It's totally totally different. It's a pretty bold rebranding, honestly.
1: It really is. Like, sorry, I'm just like going through the website right now, and it just reminds me of like scrolly telling and like that you do with like data visualizations that they change as you kind of scroll through a page and stuff it kind of feels it also kind of feels like a website that you would design with like squarespace it feels like a squarespace website but like the government wouldn't use that especially the cia so it's like it just like funny you know it doesn't feel like a government website and i guess there is like an existing mental model of government sites being kind of like I don't know older or like feeling a little outdated or even a little boring so it is interesting to see this kind of new design come up
2: <laughs> i mean say what you will about the you know the cia and their kind of history but the way i really like the website honestly like it looks like a palantir website or like a you know like a big data kind of like enterprise site you know it has like these these are contour lines here like it looks like a topographic drawing i think that's what also you'd be working on if you were a designer at the cia i think they i've seen some of the job postings and it's it's a lot of them are about like cartography and map drawing developing maps for what you know who knows what but um i mean just as a visual artifact i really do like the the, the, the website it's like very modernist it has a lot of like i don't know it has really cool little sliding animations and it has these like you scroll all the way down to the world Factbook. it has this kind of like stranger things, like glowing red eighties vibe thing. I mean, it's all, it's kind of all over the place, but I like it from a, from a, from a visual design perspective, just because I'm partial to more modernist um, designs.
1: I feel like they could have chosen another color palette.
2: <laughs> it's very, um, Yeah, it has a lot of, like, bank vibes, Palantir, Big Data vibes. It's all black, white, and red. It's a little scary. It is (laughs) is. a little frightening.
0: Yeah, now that I'm scrolling through it, I also do – I really like the scrolly telling when things, like, appear as you scroll. So I'm a fan of that. But, yeah, as I'm scrolling through it, even though it's more modern, it's somewhat even more intimidating to me (laughs) compared to, like, the old – their, like, previous sites – yeah. Yeah, but I don't know if that's the colors or if it's just maybe the way things are laid out. Yeah. It
2: is. It is scary, just because you know once you get past, you know, I'm just talking about it as like a visual artifact, but then you get down to the associations with the the, the CIA and you know, um, you know their their goals. And you know what they do. So once you start to associate with something like the CIA programs, it becomes a little bit more scary. Like the espionage and like the counterterrorism stuff, it you know doubles down on the scariness. I think once you think about the CIA and what they actually do.
1: But what do they actually do? <laughs> we don't. We don't know.
0: It's um. It's confidential. I think. Right. <laughs> I applied for an internship at the CIA when I was like a sophomore. Oh really? I think it was like some like business analyst internship. And I was, I applied, but then like afterwards, I got this questionnaire about like having, or not a questionnaire, but it was like, if you get selected, you would have to do like a physical fitness test, like all this stuff. And I was like, I don't think that's for me. (laughs) But yeah, it also, it looks like they're, again, like they're highlighting like all their student programs and like advancing your career. So yeah, really a push towards- younger people
2: well just just take a look at the splash page it says a career at cia is unlike any other we're looking for people from all backgrounds and walks of life to carry out the work of a nation so there's a big push to to try to recruit diverse a diverse you know set of folks for the cia i don't know if you saw their commercial but they're you know they're highlighting different races and genders and they're highlighting the importance of that and like To say that on the splash page, I mean, it's this has got to be, you know, this is of the utmost importance, it seems like because they say right off the the beginning, they're interested in hiring people from all backgrounds. So, I mean, it goes back to that point of they're they're, they're interested in recruiting young folks and young folks are, are obviously interested in, you know, working at a diverse organization, agency, what have you.
0: It's also interesting as I'm kind of exploring more of this, like specifically the careers pages. They have, like, quotes from people and no names tied to them, of course, but, like, what role they have. And they even have, like, a CIA agency barber. So, like, the quotes, my clients are all over the world. Literally, I get people in here back from war zone assignments. I can tell they've been overseas because the water changes their hair. I've cut hair for directors, analysts, ops, officers, and everyone in between. That's so interesting.
2: This is so weird. Uh,
0: I would... I don't know. I honestly don't know if I have a hot take for this question, but I just could as I'm just kind of scrolling through, it would be really cool to like work at the, uh, the coffee stands, but within like their building or something. Like I wonder <laughs> what type of additional training you would have to go to for.
1: You're the professional a professional water cooler. <laughs> Pick up on the water cooler chat.
0: Yes, manage the slack channels.
1: Wow. All right. well, We just want to say as we're finishing up this episode, thank you so much to Jack for joining us on this episode. Uh, We had a lot of fun and just kind of learned about NASA, which was really interesting. I feel like I didn't know that much about kind of what you guys do as HCI in NASA and what that looks like. So thanks for kind of shedding all that
0: light and joining us on this episode.
2: Yeah, thanks guys
0: and to all of our listeners out there. So this is actually the final episode of the season. So a massive thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast this past year. We don't know where we'd be without you.
1: And we also want to give a special thanks to our podcast family, uh, Sav Phillips, Austin Pete, Taylor Scavo, Matthew Lim, and the MSHCI program here at Georgia Tech for letting us take this project on during our second year. Now and I are graduating, so this will be our final episode of the hc hive and although we are graduating this isn't really the end for us
0: yeah so stay tuned
1: because if you know you know and if you don't yikes.